This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get every episode as we release them. Now, this week marks 150 years since the death of the great Victorian novelist Charles Dickens. Joining me to discuss his life and his contribution to literature, along with the story behind his blue plaque at his former London home, are director of the Charles Dickens Museum, Dr Cindy Sugru, and English Heritage's senior historian for blue plaques, Howard Spencer. Welcome to you both. Many thanks indeed for having us. Thanks for having us on. Now, Charles Dickens was one of the best-selling authors of all time, and he spent most of his life in London and several pivotal years at 48 Doughty Street in Hoburn, which has since been reinvented as the Charles Dickens Museum. And that's where you work, Cindy. So if I could start with you, when was Charles Dickens born and where? He was born on the 7th of February, 1812, at number one Mile End Terrace in Portsmouth. What was his father's job? Why did they live down there? Well, during Dickens's childhood, his father, John Dickens, was a clerk in the Navy pay office, a job at which he excelled. He later became a journalist, but I'll come back to that. John was a son of elevated servants to a very wealthy family, and he had the advantage of being educated and having connections. He also had aspirations and perhaps even pretensions of becoming a gentleman. So when he went into service, that was a way that he could establish himself and extend his social status. And Charles, how many brothers and sisters did he have? And where was he in the sort of line of births? Pecking order, yes. Well, Charles Dickens was uh, the second of eight children. He had an older sister, Fanny, and two other sisters and four brothers. One sister and one brother died in childhood, but the rest made it into adulthood. And often you think of a, a genius like Shakespeare, like Dickens, as being this individual, almost you picture them as an only child, a sole genius working away. But he was incredibly, I suppose, inspired and shaped by his family, his siblings, and particularly his relationship with his father. What was his relationship like with his parents? Well, he had a very happy childhood in a very lively, energetic, fun household, and he, he loved them dearly. But as fortunes go up and down with us all in life, so too with John and Elizabeth Dickens. So he actually had quite an unstable home life. The Dickens family moved frequently, and although a few of the moves were linked to John Dickens being posted to different locations with the Navy, as well as the growth of the family needing larger accommodation, many of the moves followed changes in the family's financial circumstances. So John Dickens uh, had a tendency to live at a level of comfort a little beyond his means, and this would periodically push the family into debt. He enjoyed hosting parties and social gatherings, taking family to the theatre. So he was always living a little bit beyond his financial capacity. And he's known to have borrowed money on several occasions during Dickens's childhood. And later on, when Charles Dickens became successful, John would turn frequently to his son for financial support. But Charles Dickens is known to have lived, in fact, at 21 different addresses before he reached the age of 25, which was when he moved to 48 Doughty Street. That's a lot of moving about for that family. 
Whereabouts did they go in the country? Were they mostly in the in the south? Well, in his early years, when his father was working for the Navy in the pay office there, they were Portsmouth and various other coastal towns associated with navies. And then where it started to go wrong for the family was really in 1822 when John Dickens was recalled to London. It was after the Napoleonic Wars had ended and the Navy had expanded for the war and was slimming back down again. So John Dickens was recalled to London. And London then, as London now, was an expensive place to live compared with the towns on the south coast where the family had been living. So they took on a small house at uh, number 16 Bayham Street in Camden Town, by which time there were five children in the family. And John Dickens, his salary was slightly reduced when he returned to London with the Navy. So the gap between his financial capacity and his spending tendencies continued to widen. And at Christmas 1823, the family moved to a much larger, more expensive house in London with the ambition of Mrs. Dickens establishing a school, a fee-paying school. But the school sadly failed to attract any pupils at all. So this increased a real spiralling debt that in early 1824 led to the arrest of John Dickens and his imprisonment at the Marshalsea Debtors' Prison. So by this time, Young Charles Dickens, he was 11, just about to turn 12 years old. So that's quite a lot of upheaval, really, for a young person. He's moved around a lot. And then he sees his father, who I suppose he would expect to see as a kind of a stable figure, someone he could trust, being sort of irresponsible with money. And his mother being caught up in that as well. That must have been quite a difficult thing to witness as a child. It was something, particularly the circumstances that led to John's imprisonment for debt, was something that really stayed with Dickens for the rest of his life. It coloured his perception of the world, this sense of insecurity, and indeed his determination never to end up like his father. So his desire and need for security, for financial security, the security of a safe and secure home, and never to allow himself or those he loved to end up uh, having the experiences that he had. How long did uh, the father spend in prison? So he was there for about three months. And what happened at that time was if your family had nowhere else to go, they would go into the prison with you. So when John Dickens was imprisoned, Dickens's older sister, Fanny, she was the eldest, and she was a piano student at the Royal Academy of Music, and she continued with her studies. Dickens, the next in line, just turning 12 years old, and he was sent out to work in a factory at Warren's Blacking Factory, which is blacking a boot polish, which was situated at Hungerford Stairs, just off the Strand, in fact, where Charing Cross Station now stands. And the rest of the family joined John Dickens in prison. And young Charles stayed for a short period of time with family friends in Camden Town. And then he took lodgings in an attic in Borough, South London, near to where the Marshalsea prison was situated so he could be near to his family. And although John Dickens was released from prison after three months, Charles continued to work at the factory until the following spring. Was Charles contributing to the family's finances at this point? And how old was he when he was working in this factory? So that he was 12 years old. He was the only one earning money for the family during that period of time. And as you can imagine, that the imprisonment of his father was 
deeply humiliating for the whole family. But that plunge into poverty was something that respectable people, even from modest backgrounds, were expected to avoid. So it was a deep, deep humiliation. And you can imagine the experience working very long hours in a rat-infested factory was going to remain with Dickens throughout his life and really color his perception of the world. Hmm. His determination never to end up like his father was absolutely behind this driving work ethic and concern for financial matters that shaped the whole of his life. We're going to bring in Howard shortly, but just before uh, we do, I'll just ask you one more thing, Cindy. Can you briefly describe what happened to Charles after his factory work and how he managed to sort of become an adult and then suddenly turn into this writer? So not long after John Dickens was released from the Marshalsea, he inherited some money and that helped to clear the debts for that period. Charles was able to go back to school for a time before he then took up an apprenticeship as a clerk in a solicitor's office at the age of 15. He worked as a clerk for about two years but found the work rather dull and soon became bored. So he decided to turn to journalism initially as a court reporter, a law reporter following cases at the police court and the court of chancery. Then he became a parliamentary reporter and then on to news and current affairs. Dickens actually pioneered a form of investigative journalism. He wasn't simply content to receive reports from informants. He would go out and see things directly for himself. And that active, vivid engagement in life and the world around him was absolutely crucial part of his creative process when he turned to writing fiction, and his fiction still carries all of it, that journalistic eye that honed his writing skills. And it was during that period as a journalist that he began to write and publish sketches, short stories in various newspapers and magazines. So to summarise, he had really amassed a life of experience at a very young age, then become an adult and then been able to sort of express these things through prose and through journalism as well. It sounds like he had really, as I say, amassed a lot of experience and then was able to express that to other people in an accessible way. Absolutely. And once his writing of fiction began to take off, he never left his journalism behind. He continued to write articles, really short, punchy calls to action. He was a great social reformer and campaigner. So that journalism, that active engagement in contemporary life was right alongside his fiction writing. And we can talk perhaps a bit more about how those two things came together quite actively. Sure, we'll do that. We'll bring in Howard as well. And just to explain to listeners, Howard is based in Brighton, Sunny, uh, sorry, Sunny Hove, where the wildlife has come out as a result of the uh, current situation. And uh, so occasionally you might hear a tweeting blackbird or some people outside. So <laughs> that's the reason for those sounds coming through. Howard, let's move to the sort of 48 Doughty Street period. 48 Doughty Street is the property in London which bears Charles Dickens' blue plaque. Tell us how old he was at the time he was at 48 Doughty Street. He moved there in March 1837 when he was 25, having got married to Catherine the previous year. They moved there from their first married address, which was in Furnival's Chambers, just off Hoban. And their first child had literally just been born in the January of 1837. Uh, That was Charlie, also known as Charles Dickens Jr. One of his middle names was Boz, which was a journalistic pseudonym that Charles used. 
Right. And Charles, you say, was married at this time to Catherine. When did he marry her? He married her in 1836. And as I say, they, they then moved to Furnival Chambers, which is now gone, but stood in Hoban near where the Prudential building now is, uh, now known as Waterhouse Square. Okay. So Doughty Street is uh, his second property in London that he's moved into since getting married. Is that right? That's right. It's, it's his second married home. And where is Doughty Street in relation to some of the London, uh, London landmarks that people might recognise today? Well, the nearest tube would be Russell Square. It's not far from Coram's Fields, where, of course, you can visit another fantastic museum once we come out of lockdown. And it's also not that far away from another brilliant house museum, which is the Sir John Soane Museum at Lincoln's Inn, which is a little distance to the south. And there's also, I must mention, uh, the other plaques in the general area. Almost opposite, at number 14 Doughty Street, is a plaque to the author and wit Sidney Smith, now, Dickens had a great predilection for calling his children after other authors. And one of his sons was duly named Sidney Smith Haldeman Dickens after this uh, Sidney Smith, who's obviously a lot less well known than Charles Dickens today, but was very celebrated as a, a wit of the time. One of his, his great aphorisms was, I have no relish for the country. It is a kind of healthy grave after he was obliged to live in Yorkshire for a while and where he claimed that he was 12 miles from the nearest lemon. <laughs> it's really interesting that uh, the names of his children lived on in, in places that he was near at the time. Um, going back to Doughty Street specifically, though, when and why was the English Heritage Blue plaque put up there? Well, it was actually put up by the London County Council because it dates all the way back to 1903. In fact, it was only the second plaque that the um, council put up. And it's in the characteristic design of that period. It's made from encaustic ware which is a form of ceramic. And the key thing about it that's of interest to the plaque spotter, which obviously includes me, is the wreath that features very largely in the, in the design. There is this triumphal laurel wreath around the name, which I think I like that because it really emphasises that the award of a plaque is not a mere statement of fact or just a, a neutral statement of a, of a, of a historical point. It's, it's really indicating approval for the person who's been celebrated by using this kind of classical motif that, mm. that always denotes triumph. It was a very significant address in terms of Dickens' career, really, because as he was living here when things really started to take off for him as a writer. It was here that he finished the Pickwick Papers. He wrote Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby, and he made a start on uh, Barnaby Rudge before he moved out. And the other point I'd make about this plaque is that, it, is, is that it was always intended right from the beginnings of the plaque scheme, which goes all the way back to 18... 66, that they were partly a tool for the conservation of buildings. In that sense, the whole plaque scheme predates the listing system for buildings. And it's interesting to note that this went up in 1903 and the museum didn't open until 1925. And I believe that the building was actually under some threat of demolition. And while that one can never prove this, because it involves counterfactual speculation, really, it is likely that having the plaque on the building helps to save that house and indeed that terrace from demolition. And of course it is now, it's grade one listed because of the association with Charles Dickens. But it's important to remember that while Georgian terraces of, this, of the sort that this is in are now much prized and their dimensions and the size of their rooms are regarded as pretty much the last word in domestic design, even now, in the early 20th century, they really weren't. They were regarded as rather sort of bland and workaday and people knocked them down really without much of a second thought. So it, it's nice to think that maybe 
having this blue encaustic plaque on the building may have uh, saved it for us today. Hmm. Dickens, you mentioned, uh, was there with his wife and child. It was their second married home. Did they live anywhere else in London? Yes, and, and, and half. Uh, they, they, they had about 17 different addresses in Greater London. Some of them were very short term. But at one stage, he actually had four official plaques, which is more than uh, anyone else. And do these residences, these 17 other places, survive today? Well, many of them don't. I'll just highlight a couple that do, in a sense at least. One that survives very much is what's now 22 Cleveland Street, formerly 10 Norfolk Street in Fitzrovia, where he lived for two separate spells as a child. And this has a plaque on it, which was put up in the last 10 years by the Dickens Fellowship. It's an interesting one because it's on the same street as what used to be the Strand Union Workhouse. And it's thought that having this in close proximity is is what may have inspired the workhouse in Oliver Twist. Another plaque that survives is is an interesting one because I mentioned before that he lived in Furnival's Inn on the site of what's now Waterhouse Square, the red brick Alfred Waterhouse Prudential Building on on Holborn. And the the, the plaque that was on Furnival's Inn actually is in the courtyard of this building and can be seen, along with a memorial to Dickens in, in the far corner as you go in. It's not strictly a public right of way, but nobody's going to stop you if you want to go and have a look at it. And this plaque actually is one of the very earliest ones put up by the Society of Arts, originally on number 16 Furnival's Inn. But this was a Georgian terrace that's now been replaced by this building of about 1900 by Alfred Waterhouse. A couple of other plaques I've mentioned to to Dickens in London is the one that marks the site of Tavistock House and Tavistock Square. It's on the British Medical Association building. What stood there before was, was the building that uh, Dickens was in, and he lived there in the 1850s before he moved out to Gads Hill in Kent. Mm. Um, and the other vanished plaque, which was a, a London County Council one of, of 1911, stood at uh, 29 Johnson Street in Somerstown, which is now known as Cranley Street. But this was one of the addresses he lived in as a child when the family were effectively on their uppers and moving rather regularly. I was going to ask, out of all the residences you've sort of been describing there, Cindy said that the family moved a lot as he was a child. How many times between childhood and adulthood would Charles have moved over his lifetime, would you say? I almost couldn't put a figure on it. If there were 21 as a child and 17 in Greater London, and that doesn't include his various stints in Kent and in abroad, because he, he spent quite a bit of time abroad latterly, I mean, he must have moved... 40 or 50 times, I imagine. I mean, whether these these were sort of full-blown moves or on occasions he would have rented a house for the season, as people tended to in those days. I mean, he was a great fan of resorts. I mean, he favoured Broadstairs for a while, and then when he got sick of that, he moved on to Boulogne. So in, in that case, these were, these were sort of rather temporary moves, I suppose. Mm. From Kent to he France. Was extreme, he was extremely peripatetic. And I think people may be surprised to know that he only lived in Doughty Street, where his museum is for... I think it's two years and nine months, something like that. Believe me, in Charles Dickens' life, that was a long time. <laughs> yeah, what, what's your thought on that, Cindy? Well, it's interesting because because of that instability in his childhood, the, the sort of frequent and sometimes very speedy flittings from one property to another, very often leaving debt behind, it became a way of life. And I think it possibly fueled 
of restlessness in Dickens. He would crave, as Howard mentioned, a sort of going to a resort, but he'd get bored of one and move on to another. So there was these shifts between wanting the stability and security of a home, but being restless and wanting new stimulation in new communities, new vistas to view. He had this insatiable need to feed his imagination with new experience. And that meant actually being physically in different places. He's not the sort of writer who would hole up in a study all day and write from his imagination. He would spend at least half of his day out there being out in London or out in the countryside, experiencing the streetscape, the landscape, coming into conversation with people, observing characters and situations. So all of that fueled it. I think his young, very peripatetic life just became the way of being for him and carried on through the rest of his life and and right up until his death in 1870. Yes, I think that's a really interesting point. As you say, it sounds like he needed the stimulation, the acquisition of visual experiences to put into his stories. But perhaps also, as you say, it was habit from his childhood, but also perhaps maybe a little bit of a, a scar, emotional scar in there as well, that moving around was trying to get away from the bailiffs and the debt collectors and and maybe that was uh, some sort of influence as well. Mm. Howard touched on there the stories that Dickens wrote at 48 Doughty Street. Just give us a reminder of what those titles were again. So, as with all of Dickens's novels, they were serialised, appearing in monthly instalments before eventually being published in volume form. So Dickens was still writing often as the monthly parts were being published, sometimes just ahead of publication. So he was very alive to his readers' reactions and uh, indeed a character proved popular and circulation figures increased, Dickens would be sure to continue the storyline. So Dickens was in the middle of his first novel, The Pickwick Papers, when he moved into Doughty Street. And then he went on to write Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby. And he started work on Barnaby Rudge, but he was also editing and publishing a monthly magazine called Bentley's Miscellany, and also edited and published the memoirs of Joseph Grimaldi, the famous pantomime clown who Dickens greatly admired. And he was writing a few short stories in amongst all this. And as Howard said, that was just under three years, an incredible output of work from Dickens and gives you a sense of his drive and the pace at which he wrote. And you can imagine the pace at which he lived his life that fueled all of the imagination going into these writings. You touched on there about the way they were published. Was there some serialisation going on there? Yeah, so they would appear usually in monthly installments, occasionally weekly, and they were published often in a newspaper or magazine, as well as in an individual monthly part, they're called monthly parts. So you could buy a monthly part for half a shilling. And he was publishing in a variety of formats to really get his work to the widest possible public. And then as the final installments were being published, the volume form would appear. So people would often buy a volume form as almost a memento of the reading experience. They would hand the volume on their shelf, having already devoured it as it was published in monthly parts, sometimes over two or more years. Imagine it like a soap opera. You're getting your your weekly fix of the next installment. So Dickens's novels are famously full of so many cliffhangers and, and so many new characters because this was 
a reading experience that extended over a period of many months, indeed years. So to try to keep that active engagement in characters, you know, he had to be incredibly adept at coming up with new storylines and keeping the humor and the pathos and the tragedy in good balance so that he could bring his audience along with him. How innovative and astute was that as an approach, but also as a marketing strategy in that period? Very much so. And Dickens was really the first writer to write about ordinary people. He wasn't just writing about middle and upper classes. So he was writing characters and often those characters using their own language, their own dialect. So for the first time, he was a deeply popular writer because he was writing about all people in society, all walks of life. So it was that sense of being connected. And of course, we think of Dickens now as an historical writer because of the settings of his novels, but he was fiercely contemporary. He wrote about real people and places and issues, often criticizing and satirizing the establishment, the government, the law, the church, and always exposing injustice. And he would do this with great insight and humor and compassion. But because he was the first novelist to write about ordinary people, he was giving them a voice, a voice to those without a voice, and always championing the underdog. And his experience as a journalist was really important. It was formative because he continued to draw inspiration from observing people, from from using his journalistic eye and indeed his journalistic methods, going out and witnessing and being involved and seeing and experiencing firsthand. So his daily working practice was interesting. He would rise early in the morning, have a bit of breakfast and write for the first four or five hours of the day. And then after lunch, he would go out and walk the streets, walk the countryside. He would have meetings, business meetings, meeting with friends, would often go to a club, frequently went to the theatre of an evening, would entertain at home, would be entertained in other people's homes. Very, very full. But all of that was feeding his imagination so that he'd come home at night, go to sleep, imagine how you process things, and the next morning wake up and continue writing. So he needed to feed himself creatively by being very much engaged with life and society. And that absolutely fueled his imagination. I suppose the other thing that makes him different from other writers of the time, I presume, is that he had seen the trials of life from both sides, from both extremes. He'd seen poverty, he'd seen wealth. Yep, absolutely. So that roller coaster of a ride. And these are the things that we see woven into the characters and the storylines in his novels. So he was sometimes only thinly disguising real people as he was writing about them. So he would he would introduce family members. I mean, even his father, John Dickens, was famously the model for Mr. Micawber and David Copperfield. And of course, one of many of Mr. Micawber's famous lines reads this, it's annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 19 pounds, 19 shillings and sixpence, result happiness. Annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 20 pounds, autumn six, result misery. This was John Dickens when he writes about Mr. Micawber, a gregarious, generous, funny, warm, charming man, incapable of managing his finances and always hoping and expecting that something will just turn up. 
Right. So he had family members, friends, associates, politicians, anyone that he would engage with in life could become a character in one of his novels. Mm. How are his own life experiences and the reality of Victorian London reflected in his writing as well? You talked about some of the characters, but can we see his own life experience through his characters and the stories that he tells? Oh, definitely. Everything Dickens wrote drew on his personal experience. It was fueled by his life, which, of course, like London at the time, was incredibly dynamic, very full. So much was happening. It was that industrial revolution fueling the sort of expansion of London, both in terms of its population and its housing and its connection and its being a a world centre at the heart of a growing empire. So incredibly dynamic and full and Dickens' life reflected this. But there were also very touching personal experiences that would then find their way into his writing. So when Charles and his wife Catherine and their newborn son moved into Doughty Street, they were joined by Catherine's younger sister, Mary Hogarth, who was 17 at the time. Now this was common practice with a younger sister supporting a new mother and learning the skills of housekeeping. So Mary joined the household. And one evening in May of 1837, after retiring to bed as normal, Mary cried out with severe pain in her head. A few hours later, she lapsed into unconsciousness and died the next day. Now, from the symptoms recorded, it's likely she suffered a brain hemorrhage. But it was such a shock to the family, the sudden death of a healthy young woman. They were absolutely devastated. Now, Catherine was in the early stages of pregnancy and she she miscarried as a result of that shock and the grief. And Dickens himself was unable to write for some weeks. It was the first and indeed the only time in his life that he missed a copy deadline. And Mary Mm. was never forgotten. And Dickens memorialised Mary in his writing. Firstly, about a year after her death, the character of Rose Maylie appears in Oliver Twist in one of the monthly installments. And like Mary, Rose is taken very suddenly ill and she comes very close to death. But Dickens, in fiction, has the power to save her. So she gets dangerously ill, but doesn't die. And then two years after that, Mary inspires the heroine of the old curiosity shop, Little Nell. And by this time, Dickens is ready to let Mary go. And in fact, in a very touching letter that he writes to the illustrator, George Catermall, who was illustrating the old curiosity shop, he writes as he did to all of his illustrators in great detail, giving lots of direction about what a particular scene should look like. And Dickens writes to Catermall in December of 1840, describing what the room in which little Nell dies should look like. And he says, I am breaking my heart over this story and cannot bear to finish it. And he says this because it's he's reliving Mary's death as he's writing the death of little Nell. Mm. Incredible. So of these sort of experiences, everything from the tragedy to the humour in Dickens' own life appears eventually in one of his novels. It sounds as though it was a necessary therapy, but nevertheless painful each time. Yes, but because he he was an incredibly sensitive, passionate individual and he felt everything acutely. So he felt the highs and the happiness as if it was magnified and similarly the tragedy. People have looked at Dickens and wondered about his mental health and 
I do think he was manic depressive. He he did have periods of depression, but he also had this relentless drive, this almost manic approach to life and to his work. And indeed, as he got older, he didn't slow down. He, he became even more driven and filled his life with more work, more commitments, more that he felt he had to do while he was here on this earth. We'll get onto that in, in, in just a few moments. But re- regarding the way he approached his writing at 48 Doughty Street in particular, did he choose a particular place in the house and uh, certain times of day? Did he? What was his routine? He generally would write in the morning, sometimes into the afternoon or evening if he was up against a deadline. But um, there's a wonderful room right in the heart of the house here, the study. And it was was where he would go. Um, And that was his office. He didn't, I mean, like a lot of people who were experiencing home working for the first time, Dickens worked mainly from home. And he would later in life have an office at a, a, a monthly magazine that he edited and published. But writing was part of his home life. So he would sit himself down for four to five hours a day and just meet the next deadlines. And he was often, because he was serializing his novels, he often had two on the go at the same time. So while he was finishing Pickwick papers, he already had started work and publishing the monthly installments of Oliver Twist. So it was a very dynamic way of not only writing, but engaging with with a reading audience. But Dickens, as I've been talking about, drew inspiration from the world around him. And in fact, if you go out of the front door of the museum at 48 Doughty Street and walk around the neighbourhood, you'll come across many places associated with the novels that Dickens wrote when he was living here. So Oliver Twist, we're only about five minutes away from Saffron Hill, where Fagin had his den, and Hatton Garden. Of course, because Dickens was writing about real situations and issues. And there were gangs of pickpockets that ran up and down Saffron Hill and Hatton Garden. And so he was writing about these gangs of pickpockets that actually existed at the time. It wasn't some fictional imagining of his. And which room are we talking to you in now? Ah, well, I'm in what would have been Dickens's neighbour's house. The museum is comprised of both 48 and 49 Doughty Street. So I'm actually just across the landing from Dickens's study in what would have been the comparable room in, in the house next door. So you're almost right next to the factory floor in a way. (laughs) Definitely. And in fact, you know, and I'm looking out the window at the back into what remains of Dickens's garden, a charming walled garden with spring flowers and a few birds uh, singing in the background here as well. Mm. It sounds as though that Doughty Street was a really key place for Charles's development. He worked pretty hard there by the sounds of things. He did. And in fact, this was where he went from an unknown writer under the pen name Boz to an international superstar. He rocketed to worldwide fame in the, the short years he he was living here, not least because his work was being published in other countries. It went to America as quickly as it was being published here. And in fact, in Dickens's own lifetime, his work was translated into numerous different languages. So he really was this worldwide celebrity, as we would understand the word celebrity today. Mm. And the Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, all written there during that um, just under three-year period. He also added to his family at that time, I understand. Howard, can you tell us a bit more about how the family grew? Yes, that's right. Two daughters were born in Doughty Street, Mary and Kate. Charles and Catherine Dickens had 10 children in all, which was quite a 
normal sized family for that time. After Doughty Street, where does the family go to live next? Well, they moved to a bigger house because of their expanding family. They moved to number one Devonshire Terrace on the Marylebone Road, a building that was also commemorated with a London County Council plaque. Unfortunately, this one didn't save it. It was demolished in 1958 amid a fair amount of controversy. And there's an office block now on it called Ferguson House, which has a frieze on it featuring a portrait of Dickens uh, and some of his characters. Obviously, Doughty Street, as we've just discussed, was a key moment in propelling Charles Dickens forward in terms of his family life and his success. But how successful was he after Doughty Street? Well, as Cindy said, I mean, he did, he did go fairly stratospheric. I mean, I think it's fair to say that he became the most recognised English author next to Shakespeare. Um, and what's more, I think he's pretty much stayed there. He certainly stayed somewhere up there. I mean, he, he travelled very widely. He gave readings in the United States, Canada. He went to Italy, went to France and to Switzerland, enjoying very wide critical acclaim and wide public popularity. And again, you have more evidence of his, the peripatetic nature of his life which partly explains, I think, why he is so extensively commemorated. The Open Plaques website, which is a very good open source website where people can contribute their own entries for plaques across the UK and beyond, they list no less than 55 plaques to Charles Dickens, which is more than anybody else. So I think this gives you some idea of where he sits in the pantheon. This stratospheric success, though, and all this travel, did it have an effect on his family life? Because we would probably describe him in modern terms as a workaholic. Is that an accurate description? And did the family life suffer? I think it did. I think he certainly he was not an easy person to live with. I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, despite all this, I think there was a, there was a degree of insecurity in there. And of course, his marriage did eventually fail. So yes, I mean, I think it, it certainly did affect him. What would you say about that, Cindy? Well, workaholic's an interesting term. It suggests where the job dictates life. But for Dickens, life and work were almost indistinguishable. It was a way of life, a vocation. And because he was so driven and also haunted from his childhood, this determination never to fall into debt, never to experience poverty again. And as he became successful and his family grew, he had more mouths to feed, more people to look after. And his extended family, and indeed his wife's extended family, became dependent on him financially as well. So so he got into this increasingly faster-paced pattern of working relentlessly in order to pay for all of the expectations around him, as well as the way of life he enjoyed himself. But it was also a sense of running away. He and Catherine had been very happy in their early married life, but she was more or less nonstop pregnant for about 16 years. And that took its toll on her. She she suffered from postnatal depression. And as Dickens became more and more active and more and more internationally famous and the pace of his life picked up, she struggled to keep up. So although they were more suited when they were younger, they seemed to diverge in terms of their energy and their focus later in life. And and as can often happen with relationships, they sort of drifted apart. Yes. And did the children appreciate the fact that their father was working so hard in order to put food on the table and give them a certain level of comfort and, and wealth? 
I think there was certainly recognition of that, but Dickens also had very, very high expectations and demands on his children. He would have been a difficult father to have because when someone has a gift and an ability and works really hard to establish themselves, I think he sometimes forgot how much effort is involved in that. And his children could never seem to match his level. And and there was a sense of disappointment. And he worked hard to try to give them different opportunities, used his influence to secure positions for different of his sons. He was immensely proud of Henry Fielding Dickens, who became an eminent QC. He was the only one who achieved success in Dickens's eyes. So he would have been a demanding and difficult father. and, And I suspect he was an infuriating husband as well. He took an extraordinary, unusual interest in household affairs and finances, interfering and almost micromanaging the running of the household. But again, I think this is fueled from the fear and insecurity of his childhood and not wanting to let go of control of the money and where the next meal would come from. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with that. I think He was probably short with his children as a result of the fact that they were effectively born into a successful household and he had to really work for it. There was a real difference in how each child uh, in different time periods were growing up. And it happens, it's not unlike today, you know, if you're born into harder circumstances and you work hard, you you want to give your children a better life and they won't necessarily see or appreciate what you've been through and they certainly get better life and perhaps are a bit more distant from that uh, drive that got you going in the first place. So you look at those sort of family patterns, I'm sure we could analyse, you know, post-World War II households here in the UK and elsewhere, the 1950s and 60s, and, and that sense of wanting to give that next generation a better life than you had. Mm. What were you going to say about that, Howard? I was just going to say that it sounds like a recipe for generational friction, doesn't it, really? You know, this, this, <laughs> and and it's, it's not surprising that there was. Yeah. Regarding this generational divide, obviously there is a later love affair between Charles and a 19-year-old actress. Is this part of the breakdown of his marriage with Catherine? Certainly the marriage was already turning before... Ellen Turnin arrived on the scene. But certainly Dickens was, by the time he met Ellen Turnin, he was a man in his 40s, a sort of classic midlife crisis. And she was besotted with him. And they met when she she was a, a young actress and she was engaged to perform a role in a play that he'd been associated with co-writing and producing with Wilkie Collins, in fact. And uh, they met and, and he became besotted with her and, and her with him. And that did eventually lead to his separation from Catherine so that he could pursue a life with Ellen instead. I mean, he treated Catherine badly. He distanced himself from her in a very public way, very hurtful. And of course, the most tragic element of that is that she was separated from her children. Dickens set her up in a home of her own in Gloucester Terrence near Regent's Park, and she lived very comfortably. But at the time, children were the property of the father. 
and the mother had no rights. So only one of the children, Charles, the eldest, he was 21, so he was of age and he chose to go and live with Catherine. The rest of the children stayed with Dickens. And the youngest was only eight at the time. So it was really heartbreaking for Catherine to be separated from her children. And did the actress move into the property with Charles and uh, be this mother figure? Well, no, they, they couldn't. It's very difficult to do that at the time because they, they didn't divorce. It wasn't an easy process to divorce, so they were separated. So his relationship with Ellen Turnin was kept very much secret. And imagine him, this international celebrity, one of the most recognised people on the planet. He couldn't be seen with her in public. So she was she was hidden from public view in life for many years, for up until his death, when their relationship clearly ended. But it wasn't until the 1930s that it became known after his last child passed away that his relationship with Ellen Turnin became publicly known. Did he have any children with her as well? Well, this is a matter of some great speculation within the the Dickensian world. It's likely that, yes, they did have a child that died in infancy. Ellen was confined for a period of time, which has been sort of determined through looking at correspondence. She was confined in France. They lived there for a period, and it's likely that the child was born and, and died there, and they never had another child. Ellen Turnin went on, uh, after Dickens' death, to marry and to have two of her own children. She also took 10 years off her life. She reinvented herself uh, and passed herself off as being 10 years younger, married a man of the church and ended up living down on the south coast uh, and having two children. Right, that's interesting. About Charles, though, from from the age of about 40 and, and, and where this relationship begins, does his career continue on this upward trajectory or does he sort of start to kind of stagnate with age in terms of his, his success with writing? No, far from it. He continues working at quite a pace, but he also adopts, I suppose, a third element to his career. If you think about his early career as a journalist, then as this writer of fiction, and then as a reader, a dramatic reader of his own work. So he, he wasn't the first person to do a public reading of his own writing, but he was the one who really grabbed it and popularized it. So he gave these very dramatic readings, either of a complete work like A Christmas Carol, a novella, or famous scenes or excerpts of the longer novels. So as Howard mentioned earlier, he traveled around uh, America reading his work. So he toured extensively in the UK and in America, filling huge auditoria, you know, 3,000, 5,000 seat auditoria to see and hear Charles Dickens read. He aspired when he was younger to be an actor and he remained a very fine amateur actor throughout his life. So his readings weren't simply reading from the page, but really more performances as we would understand them today. And of course, many of his stories were put to celluloid, either in musical form or or they were sort of reinterpreted in, in other ways. So in a way, he kind of got his wish uh, through him having passed. Uh, people are sort of living his characters even after he's gone. On film, yeah, and there, because his writing really lends itself to adaptation for stage and screen. So you know, he conjures up these very clear images of these characters. And yes, from from very early on, one of the earliest 
silent film clips is of an adaptation of A Christmas Carol, funnily enough. It was even in the early 20th century, Dickens was still incredibly popular because these these stories and characters had, had become just iconic novels, but also people felt they had a, an affinity to these characters. And I think that's because Dickens drew them from real people and from real life. So people could relate and identify with many of the characters and the situations that Dickens describes. So that's, I guess, two legacies that we could list, relatability and film adaptation, stage and screen. Howard, what other sort of legacies do you think uh, we could list for Charles Dickens? Well, I think uh, the thing I would cite is is the way that he evokes place, really. I mean, I think there's, there's something of that in his writing. I, mean, I think there's a, there's a great passage in Bleak House where he just talks about fog, estuary fog describes it in such a way as you completely understand it. You understand particularly what it would have been like then when, of course, you had much greater levels of, of pollution and, and so on, uh, from certainly coal-based stuff. And it's just an incredibly evocative passage. And I think, as you say, the characters are incredibly well-drawn. I mean, just the other day, I was trying to write something about nursing pre-Florence Nightingale. And, of course, the archetype, who did I reach for? Well, it was Mrs. Gamp, of course, from Martin Chuzzlewit, <laughs> who's this sort of nightmare drunken figure who I think at one stage she offers to bite somebody's thumb in order to make sure they don't faint. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's just, it, it's it's slightly cartoonish, I suppose, but it is an incredibly powerful archetype for, for that. And that's and that's really just just one example. But I was interested, you, you were talking about the film adaptations of The Christmas Carol, because I have a very strong, quite early memory. In my teenage years, I worked as a cinema rusher and uh, Christmas Carol, the Disney adaptation with Donald Duck as Scrooge, was on very heavy rotation. So as a result, that book and in fact that particular adaptation has always remained a bit of a, um, a guilty pleasure for me. <laughs> yes, I suppose like Shakespeare, he has created stories that are then reinterpreted in other ways, which I think is uh, quite an important legacy. Well, yes, I mean, just a surprising number of his books are still read and are still adapted. I think that's that's the key thing. I mean, if you compared him to somebody like Thackeray, who is his frenemy, I suppose you'd say. I mean, kind of, they were friendly for in, in, in certain senses, but also great rivals. And, you know, Thackeray still has no less than three official blue plaques. But dare I suggest that beyond Vanity Fair, really, the work hasn't really survived in quite the same way as Dickens has. And of course, he was on Our Money at, at one stage, wasn't he? Uh, tell us about that, Cindy. Sorry, on on Our Money? On English Money, wasn't he? He might not have been oh, on well, a Scottish note, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, he was He was certainly um, given that pride of place in 2012, which was the bicentenary of his birth, just a mere eight years ago. Um, so he's, he's certainly... Because he's one of the most recognisable characters, he was photographed we have about 10,000 photographs in our collection here at the museum but he was widely photographed and and these were turned into carte de visite sort of visiting cards and and his image was also used to promote his his reading tours so he became one of the most recognizable people in the world at that time and i think the continued popularity of his work means that image we still know today you ask anyone to draw a picture of charles dickens and they'll get the man with the beard and the scraggly hair you know old man dickens but he's there he's a figure that everyone can recognize mm. and um i think he was on the 10 pound note at one stage but i think that's since been replaced isn't it do his writings still have relevance and resonance today would you say howard touched on it briefly about the survivability of these works. 
What's your thought, Cindy? Well, I think because, you know, he's writing about big human themes of love and loss and injustice. And we all have these things in our lives. As you walk around the streets of London, we're just wearing different clothes, but there are characters out of Dickens all around us all the time. You know, they, they are very relatable. And also because he writes with such compassion and also such humor, you know, he does see the humanity and the humor in these people and in us. So so it's relatable from that perspective. But also because it is so theatrical and there isn't, there certainly isn't a year where we don't have a new adaptation either for radio or audiobooks or stage or screen. These come back round and again because they're people that we like or that we want to identify with. They were great stories. They were adventure stories for the most part. You know, there's a hero, there's a villain. It's great escapism. So you can never really tire of a really good story. And and Dickens was a fantastic storyteller. Okay, I'll leave it with a final thought then of your favourite novels from Dickens. And Howard first, if you can go first. Well, I'll go back to that that Disney adaptation. I'd have to say Christmas Carol. It's a bit of an obvious one, but there it is. Which also became Scrooged with Bill Murray, I think, in the 90s, which was, yeah. which was also quite a successful adaptation, I would say. Um, well, again, you, 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 you come back to that skill in drawing characters, characters that continue to resonate. Hmm. And the, the, the ghost idea, I think, is something that really, you know, that life and death dichotomy is also very interesting, always. Cindy, what about you? What are, what are your favourite works? Oh, it's it's really difficult because I'm just I'm just listening to a fantastic audio book of Nicholas Nickleby just now. So I would say, gosh, you know, there's a lot in there. My favourite Dickens novel is always the one that I'm reading at the time, and audiobooks have have really transformed listening because you can have an unabridged novel read to you while you're cooking or doing the ironing, and these are great stories. But if I had to pin down to one, the one that I have read and reread the most in my life is Great Expectations. And when I first read it, I was maybe 12 or 13, and I really related to Pip, our hero of the story, and then read it again when I was in my 20s, and I, I could identify more with Estella. And now that, you know, later in life, it's more Miss Havisham that I draw my attentions to with a bit more sympathy than I had for her when I first read the novel. So I think there's so much that you can find at different stages in your life that you'll relate to different characters and and perhaps take a more sympathetic view toward the the villains of the tale. Mm. Dickens, the universal writer, you could summarise it as, I suppose. Absolutely. And truly, because, you know, his his work has been translated into so many different languages, 17 or 18 in his own lifetime. So, you know, he was writing about themes that everyone in the world can and, and did identify with. And there's so much evidence that, as we were saying a bit earlier on, everybody still wants a piece of him. I mean, there's the sheer number of commemorations. I mean, I mentioned earlier that uh, there are 55, at least 55 plaques to him across the UK. Some of them marking connections that are perhaps a little bit tenuous. It may be a place where he simply gave a, a reading or stayed for a few nights, but the fact that people seem to want to still do this kind of commemoration is evidence of his longevity. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more details about the London Blue Plaque Scheme, visit the English Heritage website. Next week, we're back to find out about the importance of summer solstice at Stonehenge and other stone circles. 
And so we can imagine that all of these rites and these religious beliefs were connected to the sun and connected to the key directions of the sun, part of the kind of worldview or the religion of the people at that time. Thanks for listening. See you next time.